as I crossed clamped the aorta, I looked up at the anesthesiologist who was hanging a bag of fresh, warm, whole blood. And it seemed to be only a few heartbeats later that the patient's oozing stopped and his blood pressure started to increase to allow perfusion and maintain his life. So that was truly a religious experience. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state of the art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, Wardox has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel Dr. Evan Renz to War Docs. Colonel Renz was originally commissioned as a medical service officer and served with the 82nd Airborne Division as a Ranger and Master Parachutist. He received his medical degree at the University of South Dakota and trained in general surgery and then later specializing in burn trauma and surgical critical care. He has deployed multiple times around the globe, including Iraq and Afghanistan. He also completed a senior executive fellowship and earned his master's degree in public health and health policy at Harvard University. Dr. Renz currently serves as a deputy to the commander for quality and safety at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio. You can read his full bio on wardocspodcast.com. On this episode of War Docs, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Colonel, Dr. Evan Renz to the show. Dr. Renz, thanks for joining us. Thank you, gentlemen. It's a great pleasure for me to join you and help capture some of military medical history. You have a unique story in that you went to medical school after your military career had already started. Tell us about your military career prior to medical school and what led you to military medicine. It is fair to say that my journey to become a military surgeon was somewhat atypical. Even though I went down a fairly classical pre-med pathway and earned my bachelor's degree in chemistry, my focus at the time of graduation was to serve as an army officer, not to start medical school. Upon graduation from college, my wife and I were fortunate to be offered a joint domicile assignment at Fort Bragg. I was assigned to the 82nd and my wife was assigned to the 44th Med Brigade. And during five years there, I was privileged to deploy with the 82nd abroad and serve as a jump master with the highest caliber NCOs and officers who certainly demonstrated what right looked like in terms of leading soldier medics. And those lessons proved invaluable over the course of my career. It was during my uh, pre-medical years that I met many of the mentors who would later guide me throughout a 30-year career. Can you share any uh, anecdotes about your time there with the 82nd where you learned some of those valuable lessons? One of the deployments I, I went on was to Turkey in the early winter as part of an operation known as display determination that was a joint exercise with Turkish military. And it involved a large mass tactical airborne operation into a former sunflower field that had been freshly harvested and was somewhat rough. The jump itself should have been canceled and was in fact uh, waved off multiple times. But in the end, the commanding general ordered that the jump proceed as planned despite the high winds and 
there were approximately 30 severe casualties on that airborne operation, many of whom had to be air evacuated from Turkey to Germany for care. And so even though I, I was not a physician at the time, I was leading the ground evacuation team and the ambulance platoon to move those patients off the drop zone to our field hospital and then onward to Europe. That was a very eye-opening experience for me to see how many people could be injured so rapidly and the long-term effects of those injuries because they were from our unit. The commanding general who ordered the go for the jump was actually so severely injured himself that he retired earlier than expected due to his own injuries. So that was a a lesson learned the hard way for many people. So one of the interesting things in your pre-medical career as a military officer was that you served as the operations officer at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences or, or the military's medical school. And you served as an instructor before you had attended medical school. Tell us about what it was like to train physicians prior to becoming a physician. The assignment to US UHS was certainly unplanned. It was something I never anticipated. And it was the result of a chance meeting with the dean and president, Jay Sanford, who at the time I met him was performing his role as a reserve colonel. And I was serving as the jump master for the helicopter that he exited during an airborne operation. And uh, following that jump, I picked him up uh, from the drop zone and then we were engaging in a conversation and he simply asked what I was doing there and what my plans were. And I told him that I had completed my pre-medical education, but was far too busy engaged in other side of the military to which he responded, you're not getting any younger. And he really encouraged me to uh, speed up my process to matriculate into medical school. And he became a strong mentor for that whole project. So during the time I was able to work for him at uh, USU, I was able to meet literally hundreds of future medical corps officers that I would later serve with. So it was just an incredible time of meeting so many great officers as they were becoming physicians, and I was able to know them from their, their earliest beginnings. So what are the duties of a medical service corps officer at the university? They were quite uh, diverse in terms of what I was asked to do. I uh, served as the rappel master and the weapons instructor and the land navigation instructor and the operations officer for the field exercises, such as the FTX at Quantico Marine Corps Base and Operation Bushmaster that was conducted then at Camp Bullis, Texas. So I was essentially charged to run the uh, field training exercises, uh, working with the medical corps staff in the Department of Military and Emergency Medicine. And I worked at that time for then Colonel retired Craig Llewellyn, who again was a longtime mentor uh, and still is. Now, when you were dealing with uh, those medical students at that time, are there any stories or anybody that stood out that you said, that person's really going to make it in Army medicine? And then they did. Frankly, I don't recall predicting 
that any particular individuals would rise to be future commanders or general officers. But I can say that I have known several who have. So for example, one of your prior guests, General Talita Crossland was one of our medical students at the Uniformed Services University when I served there. And so I, I can honestly say I've known her since day one of her career. And the same with many other officers who uh, I either deployed with or worked with later. So I would love to say that I predicted her rise from her start at USU, but that, that would not be true. So let's fast forward a little bit. You completed medical school, completed your general surgery training, and then you go out to Honduras as the Joint Task Force Bravo surgeon. What does the military have going on in Central America that it needs docs? And was there anything memorable or a particular case that comes to mind about that experience in Honduras? The time spent at, in, at Sotocano Air Base in Honduras was a really great experience because you are one of only a handful of physicians there and you're the only surgeon. So you have a very limited uh, operating room capability, but it is adequate to meet the needs of a, of a small airbase in the middle of Central America. The Joint Task Force Bravo mission is quite robust and involves multiple countries with whom the U.S. has a ongoing relationship and training mission. At the time I was there, the most concerning events involved the activities in Colombia with the FARC, and there had been multiple engagements with the military forces at that time. And the U.S. was working with the Colombian government to help them deal with that FARC presence. Uh, there were, had been injuries to the Colombian military. So even though we were in Honduras, we were always thinking about what we may have to do to support that uh, need. At the same time, there were local efforts with the hospital in Tegucigalpa, particularly their burn center that interested me. And so I was able to go into the city and operate with the local surgeons, and which was a, a great learning experience, being able to perform some of the operations using open techniques that we hadn't been using in the U.S. because of the advancement of laparoscopic techniques. So all the, all the operations were done open regardless. So I probably did more open cholecystectomy operations in Honduras than I ever did in the U.S. So we fast forward your career just a tiny little bit, a year, and you became a burn surgeon after completing a fellowship in burn surgery at Brook Army Medical Center in 2004. I think many folks may not know that the Army has a burn flight team. Can you tell us a little bit about your role as the U.S. Army burn flight team chief from 2004 to 2008, and then later directing the Institute of Surgical Research in San Antonio? The burn flight team has been in existence for decades. And as you point out, it is not that well known. So being honored to serve on that team for just shy of seven years was an incredibly rewarding experience. The team has a worldwide mission. It is ready to depart uh, San Antonio on a literally a moment's notice. The team consists of critical care registered nurses, LVNs, respiratory therapists, and a critical care uh, general surgeon. The 
long range evacuation missions that are usually required uh, definitely put to the test the the skills of all the team members that have to be very reliant upon one another throughout the entire flight. The mission has changed over the years. Uh, many, many years ago when the burn flight team was part of what was known as the military assistance to safety and traffic mission and the Huey helicopters were based at Fort Sam Houston. The members of the bird flight team back then would literally fly around South Texas, bringing patients back to San Antonio. And then as our system evolved and the air evacuation mission in the mid to late 70s was civilianized. Uh, that part of the burn flight team mission went away and it changed purely to a long range transport, very much similar to the SeaCat uh, role performed by the Air Force. I would say that the burn flight team mission is unique in the sense that the team who travels to meet and transport the patient becomes the care team for the patients that they transport. So my cases, we may fly to launch stool to pick up patients, may operate on them at launch stool, and then transport them back to San Antonio, where we continue to care for them throughout their hospital stay, which in some cases uh, turned from weeks into months and then isolated cases over a year. So in one of our previous episodes, we had interviewed Dr. Kevin Chung, who is a burn intensivist, critical care physician, and he had mentioned uh, resuscitation. So when you would receive a call for an American soldier who had been badly burned on the battlefield, either Iraq or Afghanistan, because this was 2004 to 2008, what was the sequence of events as far as going out and getting a typical patient who had been injured on the battlefield? What were some of your struggles? The call itself to evacuate a patient who sustained a life-threatening burn would come into the burn center and the uh, team would receive the launch order and would depart San Antonio via civilian flight. So we would fly commercial flight to Frankfurt International Airport and then head off to Launchstool to pick up the patient. So the first time we would be able to examine the patient and assess them firsthand was as we arrived at Launchstool. And many times we would uh, have to turn immediately and load the patients and take them immediately back to San Antonio without much time to prepare them due to aircraft availability. So there, there were other times we would be forced to uh, stay at launch stool for an extended period of time as we waited for an evac flight or an aircraft back, even though it was dedicated to us, the planes were not always available. So the circumstances changed with each flight and we were never quite sure uh, how that mission was going to be routed. And we always requested that they be straight flights uh, from Ramstein to San Antonio International. And most of the time that uh, request was granted. On rare occasions, we would have to um, land at the on the East Coast first and then and continue on after a brief delay. Tell us a little bit about the most amazing burn case that you were personally involved in on this team. I think the most challenging and memorable flight was the one that involved 13 patients, most of whom were, were critically 
injured. It was a uh, combination mission where due to the number of casualties, all of whom were going to the burn center, we were able to receive direct support from a CCAT team. So it was a, a joint effort to, between the burn flight team and the CCAT team. And that was incredibly valuable to combine forces in that way and essentially double our complement of providers and equipment and medications. Uh, we certainly learned from each other. All the burn flight team members have completed the CCAT course. And so therefore we, we knew their standard and operating procedures and all the equipment's essentially in common with some exceptions for ventilatory support equipment. So just having to manage that many patients in flight, most of whom were, again, critically ill, uh, most were intubated, most were requiring high levels of ventilatory support, certainly kept everyone on their A-game the entire flight. There, there's simply no time to take your eye off the ball because uh, too many things can go wrong. How many physicians were part of that flight? Was it just you? In that particular flight, it was I was the, the sole burn surgeon on the flight. There was a physician assistant and there was an intensivist with the Air Force CCAT team. So there were two physicians, a PA, two critical care registered nurses, and two uh, respiratory therapists or techs. You've had several combat deployments as a surgeon to both Iraq and Afghanistan. Iraq in 2005 to 2006, also in 2008 to 2009, but then to Afghanistan in 2011. Tell us what was unique amongst traveling to the two different theaters of war and some interesting stories you have from those deployments. Starting with Iraq, I will say that one of the most memorable aspects of the deployment to to Baghdad was the message from uh, Colonel John Holcomb telling me shortly before I deployed that the first time I transfused warm, fresh whole blood obtained from the walking blood bank would be nothing short of a religious experience. I later vividly recall opening the belly of a young Marine only to see red Kool-Aid masquerading as blood filling his abdominal cavity. And as I crossed clamped the aorta, I looked up at the anesthesiologist who was hanging a bag of fresh, warm, whole blood. And it seemed to be only a few heartbeats later that the patient's oozing stopped and his blood pressure started to increase to allow perfusion and maintain his life. So that was truly a religious experience, uh, as Dr. Holcomb predicted. And I will tell you that it brings me great joy today to see how fresh whole blood is being used almost routinely in our trauma system today, along with the tourniquet and the rule of 10 for burn resuscitation. So what I remember about the deployments, in addition to the teamwork, and of course, the recollection of so many patients is the implementation of the translational research that was done during that time frame. It was an incredible experience to be part of the process that identified the problems and then sought solutions to them and implemented them in fairly rapid order. And because the, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan has lasted so long, we've been able, as our colleagues know, to watch so many things 
evolve and be put into practice. That is a fairly broad overview of what I've taken away from those deployments, but that is what I believe is the most valuable uh, thing that I took away. 2011, when you were deployed to Afghanistan, there had been a fairly dramatic shift in the type of injuries that American soldiers were sustaining because now in 2011 in Afghanistan, there were significant IEDs with more explosives. And how did you see the combat injuries change from the time you were in Iraq to the time you then went to Afghanistan five years later? My my answer to that question also ties in with, with research. So one of the biggest things that we noticed, particularly at the burn center, was that in 2004, five and into six, we saw almost all of the burn casualties and, and many of the non-burn casualties, but amputees come in because of the explosive mechanism that you're referring to. But the burn patients sustained their polytrauma from the explosion and the incumbent flames. One of the things we worked very diligently on in those early years was to partner with the team at PEO Soldier and the Natick Labs to work on improved fire-resistant uniforms, starting with gloves and then working our way up to the what was known as the Army Combat Shirt, and then later the whole fire-resistant ensemble for the crew members, the air crew members, tankers, etc., and then eventually all of the line. So we could clearly see the reduction in the thermal injuries among the patients we were receiving. We watched the peak and we watched the the curve go down, which was again, very rewarding to know that the the research and the the collaboration was paying off. So for me, just the, the reduction in severe thermal injury was the thing that we were seeing and, and, we're so grateful for. And then with respect to the non-thermal injury, we were starting to see fewer uh, large-scale groups of injuries is reflected in the data. And to some degree, just a transition from the blast to a more classical small arms injury. Uh, By the time, at least by the time I was in Afghanistan, I think those environments were were quite uh, different in most in most cases. So looking back in World War One, World War Two, they used blood on the battlefield, plasma, and then we kind of got away w- from that. It seems like sometimes we forget lessons learned. Reflecting on your years of experience, how do we know when it's time to unlearn a lesson or when it's time to learn a new one? And have you noticed any trends in learning concepts that are important in this process? The biggest thing that 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 I took away from the deployments and looking back on what is now almost 20 years of continuous deployments to provide combat casualty care is that we as leaders in the military medical system have a responsibility to do everything we can to avoid or at least make the learning curve as shallow and or as, as short as possible. I think that Everyone who has deployed to the combat zone was feeling the same thing, that we were learning some lessons that probably could have and should have been learned much quicker, could have been learned some from the history books, 
when you read some of the work that was done during and shortly after Vietnam, there were many lessons taught about resuscitation. You referred to some of the World War II lessons about the use of plasma. And those lessons were captured in our military medical textbooks. But along the way, someone, and I don't mean individuals in isolation, but groups of people and on our trends either forgot the lessons or decided there was a better way. So you asked a very tough question. How do you decide to abandon a process? And I think it all has to rely on data. I think that the practices and processes that we have implemented over the last 20 years have been tied to data as much as possible. And I think that is the only sure way to make sure we're doing the best thing at that moment in time. I think that Dr. John Holcomb, who I mentioned earlier, was pivotal in that process because he pushed the limits to implement the, the research to get the answers to the question as fast as possible and to get solutions to the battlefield in a timely way. And I think this is one of those cases in history, as we look back, that he was the right person at the right time for the right role. And I think that he and others made enormous contributions to the saving of lives because of that, that vision and that drive to make sure we had the data to support what we were doing. When I looked over your CV and looked at your many, many publications, there was one in particular that jumped out at me because it included my co-host, Doug in that paper, and that was complications and circumcision in Afghanistan. I must know, tell me about that paper and what brought that on. Well, as you, as you point out, that's obviously a seminal publication in, in the world of urology. I'm sure it's cited at many of the national meetings. The impetus for that paper was simply our observation that we had this population of infant males showing up at the combat support hospital at Camp Dwyer in the Helmand province who were showing up with either bleeding or infection related to a less than optimal circumcision performed by the village elder who was serving as the surgeon, and also in many cases as a village musician. So he had a dual role, a very, very prominent place in the community. And as we talked to the families on how this was done, we realized that we could see how this, this injury occurred, where a single uh, stroke of the blade, sometimes misguided, well-intended, but misguided, took off a little too much uh, tissue. And so some reconstruction was required, a surgical revision was required in some cases. Now, uh, this was not something we anticipated, but we were happy to assist these family members who were quite distraught. And if the time allowed and we weren't taking care of combat casualties at the time, it was a service that we could provide. I will say, sir, that the, the real take-home lesson for most of us involved with that paper and, and just the cases in general is was a reminder once again that pediatric care in the combat environment is a, is real. Despite what our doctrine may say, despite what our planning figures may say, and the fact that many people often say, well, we really don't have a role for pediatricians or pediatric surgeons in the, in the combat zone, I would simply argue that the data 
does not support that uh, contention, but quite the opposite, that a U.S. military hospital or, or an ally hospital in the middle of nowhere often becomes the uh, a magnet for any and all care. So I think those who deploy in the future should be prepared to take care of pediatric patients in all cases because they will come. So a lot of times physicians and especially surgeons, what they would consider the best save that they ever saw. Looking back on your career as a surgeon, is there a particular case where you were the attending surgeon? They said, wow, that was an incredible experience and the patient made it and it was almost a surprise that they did. I don't personally believe that I, as an individual, have any saves whatsoever. I believe that all of us are simply implements and members of a team that contribute together to sustain life and to bring people from bad injuries into a better place and recover. So I don't have one case as you describe, but I will say that those many years of serving in the burn center, I was privileged to participate in the care of almost 1,100 patients, both at home and abroad, many of whom defied the odds in terms of their survivability, both due to the seriousness of their injury and the combination of injuries. There were a couple individuals who clearly surprised all of us by virtue of their resilience. Those individuals were such an inspiration to our team because they gave us hope. What we were doing work to save lives on a daily basis was, was not in vain because uh, frankly, there were times when we would collectively be told that there was there was no use in in trying to save certain individuals who many believe would not go on to live in their minds a productive or or meaningful life because again of the severity of injury. And I think those individuals humbled all of us and taught us so much more than we could ever gain otherwise because they showed us and reminded us of the power of the human will and faith and the human spirit. So I could never deal that experience down to one individual. There's just, there's just too many, many of whom I've been fortunate to stay in contact with all these years. And I've watched them achieve in ways that we would never have imagined. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team War Docs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.